Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the job ahead for the new OSD CIO. Frequently asked questions in the acquisition world and private sector lessons for buying in government. It's Tuesday, November 1st, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Technology Modernization Fund's awarding almost $2 million to the Ability One Commission. Money will fund an update to Ability One's procurement list information management software. The award pushes the total TMF investment now to more than $600 million. The Department of Veterans Affairs has opened a new contract for healthcare innovation. 17 vendors are eligible for work under the Accelerating VA Innovation and Learning contract. The maximum value of the five-year contract is $650 million. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Salesforce is the connected platform that powers government health services. Salesforce helps public entities engage with their health constituents on a single intelligent platform to improve care outcomes from anywhere. Learn more at sfdc.co slash psh. The Office of the Secretary of Defense has a new technology directorate. Daniel Metz has moved over from the office of the DOD CIO to lead it. Dave Wintergren is Chief Executive Officer of ACT-IAC. He's former Chief Information Officer of the Navy, former Deputy Defense Department CIO, and former Assistant Deputy Chief Management Officer. At ELC 2022, he tells me what Danielle Metz and her team are up against. The Office of the Secretary of Defense is a big place, and I'll say it's full of very important people. Yes. And I, and I say that with great fondness. They really are very senior people. And the complexity becomes when you have a whole lot of organizations that are very senior, have broad scopes of responsibility, and their own sort of mechanisms for getting that work done, it becomes really challenging for a cross-cutting organization like a CIO shop to bring them all together. Oftentimes, when you have a problem, you're happy to see the CIO shop up to help you fix the problem. But if you're not having a problem, you'd just as soon be able to go do your own thing and be left alone. Right. And so I think part of the challenge for Danielle and the rest of the team at the Washington Headquarters Service will be how do you make sure that that group is actually functioning as a aligned organization? I mean, at the end of the day, the Secretary of Defense looks after a massive enterprise, but that whole headquarters apparatus that surrounds them with the undersecretaries and assistant secretaries has to function as one integrated enterprise. And I think that perhaps the thing that can help change this is to get more involved in the business processes and business process optimization for the organization so that you don't just get relegated to be the network administrator and, you know, mobile device provider. Mm -hmm. uh, Daniel said at CyberTalks, our event a couple of weeks ago, I'm a big proponent of enterprises. I think it's really important because there's more commonality than there is uniqueness. And I like the sound of that as an outside observer because it sounds like that idea of the enterprise is super, like is priority one. And I'll ask her about it and, and we'll hear about that later in the week. But um, that strikes me as maybe the most important thing to get everybody on the same page, basically. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's just no reason for people to be going their own way nowadays. And and I'm a few years removed from working in that organization. So, you know, I, I don't know how much progress they've made, but I guarantee you there's more progress that could be made to make everybody be aligned as an enterprise. How we do things on a common platform is just so important nowadays. You know, you want, you want your office world to function like your mobile device world functions, where I can have 
apps that are sort of specialized for my line of business, but but we're not doing the whole phone on our own, right? And so common platforms, common messaging, common email, common, you know, the ability to like collaborate across the organization is really crucial. I can say, as I said before, sort of half jokingly, you know, like the the undersecretary for personnel and readiness, the undersecretary for acquisition, they're very senior people and they got really important portfolios. But but it's really easy to end up just being a group that works in isolation. And so how do you bring them together so that the Secretary of Defense really is benefiting from having everybody as one group working together rather than a bunch of disparate stovepipes working separately? Who do you think are going to be her most important partners? Well, you know, as is always the case, if you have if you have CIO in your job title and you're not spending a whole lot of time with the financial person and yep. the contracting person and then the personnel person, then you know, you're not really working the levers of power. Yeah. And so uh, and so a good relationship with the DOD controller will just be super important because even though, you know, the Washington headquarters service OSD apparatus has its own budget and stuff, you know, you still got to have that sort of imprimatur about how money could be spent. And, and how money shouldn't be spent mm-hmm. because you need some enforcement agents. And, and what I found in my past was, you know, if you have the contracting officers making sure that people aren't doing, I'll say, rogue contracting, yep. and you have the financial apparatus saying none of the money for this line of business could be spent doing something other than the way we want to do it, then you have these enforcement agents from the controller and the contracting shop that are helping drive your agenda with you. Whether it's DOD or someplace else in government, how do you judge success of an attempt, an initiative to drive enterprise IT? What does that look like in the end? Yeah, well, you know, there's there's a couple of ways to look at it. I think the one that's gaining a lot of momentum that, you know, we can't say enough about is the the customer experience and customer satisfaction thing. If, if we go in and we take away your sort of local domain and replace it with an enterprise view or enterprise solution, but it really isn't very good, then, then you're not going to be happy, right? And you're going to use your position of great seniority to go be able to break away and go do your own thing. And that's why we've in the past we've had so many disparate little groups, right? And so how can you measure customer satisfaction, but also some common measuring sticks around what's, you know, how much stuff is being done locally, how much stuff could be done enterprise, and how much change have we seen, mm-hmm. right? Oftentimes, you know, we do oversight that's just sort of like complaining about a problem. But it's, it's a lot better to have a plan that we then go track. And I guarantee you, if the top leadership of the department shines a spotlight on the plan, and whether it's made any progress, people will spend time working on it. And the advantage, I guess, she has in that case then is her customers are also those partners that you mentioned, right. given where the office's position. Yeah. Like, I imagine Mike McCord will be one of her biggest customers well, in it, addition to one of her biggest allies. Right. He should be one of her biggest fans because yep. if she does this right, you'll help drive down, you'll get rid of duplicative costs and you'll get rid of the extra money that goes into dealing with the friction that takes place when things aren't aligned in an enterprise view. What does What's the connection that you see to the DOD CIO office? Because uh, the feedback that I've gotten generally from the community is, well, I wonder why that's not happening in John Sherman's office. And I mean, not that he's not busy enough already is yeah. kind of my response. They, they really are different jobs. Yeah. And, uh, and so if you think about it, you know, like uh, I would say John and his team, you know, I'm sure they still have some kind of internal CIO council. And uh, Danielle should be a part of that CIO council. Um, you know, you've got the Army, you've got the Navy, you've got the Air Force, Marine Corps, you've got defense agencies, and then you have this OSD apparatus, and all of those need to be working together. And so back in the day when dinosaurs still roamed the earth and I was there at DOD, <laughs> right, we had a, a CIO council that the person 
who was the equivalent of this job, let's say the OSDCIO, was was part of that, so that the voices could be heard together, mm-hmm. and uh, and and I think that's just really crucial. But but just like you don't want the DODCIO to be dealing with like how a naval shipyard does its IT, right? You, they really are the top level strategy organization to execute the secretary's vision for the department and put into place the IT policies that the rest of the organization conforms to. So you said something there a moment ago that jumped out at me because this is a new directorate, but it's not necessarily a new function. It's you said there's been right. an OSDCIO right. before. Right. Back in the days when I was there, it was a guy named Dennis Clem, right? And so there's clearly, you know, it's clearly this continuing thread of, you know, Somebody's got to run the network. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the Office of the Secretary of Defense is a big place. And, uh, and so somebody's got to take care of that. And I think the, the question becomes, and perhaps what this new model is going to be more focused on, is how do you rise that up to not just be, you know, we'd like to not have disparate networks. Yeah. But in addition to being on a common network, how can we be sharing common tools, common applications, so that we're really working together rather than as a loose affiliation? But it sounds like what you said a moment ago it makes me think that she's going to be on a similar uh, place on the org chart to Aaron Weiss at the Navy and Lauren Nelsenberger at the Air Force and Raj Iyer at the Army. Like, that's that's almost a service level That would level certainly be helpful. It? Yeah, that would certainly be helpful, right? And uh, and the def- and at a minimum, the defense agencies, right? Yeah. you got like 20-some defense agencies. Each one of them has a CIO. Mm-hmm. There's a CIO at Defense Logistics Agency and DESA and all the other defense agencies. And, and clearly, there, there's those sizes of those organizations setting aside DISA with its sort of global mission. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're like on a par with some of the things she'll be doing. All right. Um, your team is fantastic. They always are great. And I love coming to this event every single year. And I mean, there's like the thousand people here practically. Yeah. Yeah. It's really great. It is. It's a great turnout. I think there's a real hunger for people to get back together again in Mm -hmm. person. There's a serendipity that happens after the panel discussion when people just talk that doesn't happen when you're on a Zoom or a Teams call when everybody pushes the end session button. And so, yeah, we we saw a great, great uptake on, on the conference and we're just delighted. You can read more about the new OSDCIO office in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, programming note that conversation with Danielle Metz that I referred to during the conversation with Dave is the feature on next week's Defense Scoop podcast. This week's Defense Scoop podcast featured guest is Katie Savage, the Deputy Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Officer in the CDAO office at the Pentagon. You can get that show every Wednesday morning at defensescooppodcast.com and wherever you get your shows. The General Services Administration is rolling out a number of new contract vehicles in the coming months. You'll learn more about them in the next week or so on the Daily Scoop podcast. Janet Clement is Chief Executive Officer of Jefferson Consulting. She's former Director of Strategic Planning and Organization Development at the U.S. Mint. At ELC 2022, I asked her what questions companies and agencies are asking her about dealing with the government and industry now. The questions that we're getting now are, how are we navigating inflation? You know, we're getting a lot of um, thoughts and and, um, ideas from people about economic price adjustment and, you know, those kinds of things, but but they're not being executed and they're not being driven down to the contracting officer. So while there's policy and and discussion, you know, companies, industry are, are hunkering down and they're saying, you know, how are we gonna get made right in this economic time? Um, and then on the other side, 
there are a few contracting officers that are willing to take the leap, but they're not getting the support from up the agency. Mm-hmm. And so really on the acquisition side, that's our biggest challenge right now is helping our customers figure out how to navigate that to get these contracts updated. And then also from our very own perspective, us getting our contracts updated yeah. to, to make these jumps. Why do you think the the COs are having trouble getting that support from further up the chain? Well, I really think it's a matter of budget. Yeah. So while there's a need to um, do these cost adjustments, there may not be budget for them. Mm. And um, you know, the government's in just as straight, just as tight a spot as we are, in terms of they've they, the budget was done how many years ago? They've got the money, and and so now. Um, you know, what are they, how are they increasing it? Where is that money coming from? Because if they can't get more money from Congress, then they're just robbing Peter to pay Paul. Mm-hmm. And I think that really is what is driving a lot of the lack of action. Yeah. So, and that's a bigger picture. And, and I think when we look at government today, it really hasn't changed much. It is still this gargantuan beast that if you can't fix that top layer in Congress... And we know we have a lot of problems in Congress, especially today. Yeah. Very divided, very little partisan, right? Um, or bipartisan. And so I think that's our biggest challenge. Mm-hmm. And that really hasn't changed. And the, it seems to me the only thing that changes that is within Congress. That's not something that anybody in the executive branch can do anything about. It's more of a function of figuring out how to fix the situation around the edges as best one can and... And the big picture is not really anything that can, that can be addressed at that level. Is that a fair observation? You I think? think that's extremely fair. And, you know, it, it takes organizations like ACT-IAC, PSC, SSLC to really pull together the power of industry and government to help influence those changes in the congressional areas, right, mm-hmm. where, where where things can get done. And, and I think it's harder in the last six to eight years than it's ever been. That's That's what I'm seeing. And then, you know, the other side of my business is, is really focused on USAID. And um, what we're seeing there is just a h- huge commitment to getting the mission done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, getting people vaccinated around the world, supporting Ukraine, uh, f- dealing with food security around the world. A- and their issues are, um, our, our, our USAID customers are really more focused on just getting it done however they can. And that to me is energy. When, when, I, when I'm working with USA, what I feel is that energy, that commitment. And, and when they have a challenge, they tend to come together as a community and figure out that challenge. Yeah. And they, if, they, if they need to rob Peter to pay Paul, they tend to do that a little bit because they want to put the money where it is. And I, and I really value that in USA. But I don't know that other agencies um, have that kind of driven mission focus. Yeah. USAID has an advantage, I think, because they just got a terrific chief information officer. Jason Gray was at education for a while. He's been at other agencies. And they haven't had a, a permanent CIO for a while. And now they've got one, and they've got somebody that can really execute there, it strikes me. Right. Mohammed um, was there for a long time. I actually worked with him back at the Mint. <laughs> He's gone on to uh, other things. Yeah. But I don't know Jason Gray, so I'm, I'm anxious to see what he can do, and I, I'm excited for him to be there. So Jason had a lot of influence in moving the modernization efforts that education undertook. And my understanding is that all J- although Jay had made some progress in that respect, too, AIDS in kind of the same situation that a lot of other agencies are in, where there's still a lot more work to do, mm-hmm. modernization-wise. Right. Yeah, I, I think Jay went, Jay Mahan went to 
went to USAID at an interesting time, and they were really very set back. I think he, and I forget the guy who actually went before him, he was the CIO at the Mint, but he retired, Jay mm. took over. I think he did make some progress, um, and I'm hoping that you know we'll see even greater progress now because without information technology, we, we really are kind of stuck. And I was, I was struck by the lack of digital skills around the world. And there's a thing on the web where you can go see where you have digital skills in like the 15 to 18 year olds. And while in America, most of uh, Western Europe, you have a high concentration, in Africa and some of these other countries, it's close to 10% of kids 15 to 18 with any digital skills. Mm -hmm. and, and when you think about that and you think about how we, how we assume to get information out and use information, that's scary. Mm -hmm. What do you see as being the the biggest issues that this crowd here at this conference is going to deal with in the next year, 18 months? Well, the continued issue around hybrid workforce, yep. I think that's just going to continue to plague us. It's very challenging. Um, but the data integration, so everybody's tired of having to fat finger data over here and then go to this agency and it's the exact same data. I think that's just our it's got to be our biggest focus. We've got to get that data interoperable, whatever you want to call it. Pick a new word. Um, I, I was just listening to Jamie Holcomb, and he was saying it's not project management. It's it's value driven, and you know don't just process it. It's not velocity. You got to get results, right? Mm -hmm. And the results are going to be when we can have data interchange across agencies. Um, somebody said I should be able to get all my data from the federal government in you know one place. I don't disagree with that. Right. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, SS it's a great idea. SSA probably has 19 databases on me alone, right? Not to mention somebody who's already getting Social Security. That's the kind of that's the challenge that I think we face the most. Yeah. Um, what What's um, it's easy to, for me to say what's the solution to that? And I know it's not as simple as just figuring out one thing and doing it. But what's what do you think the pathway looks like, Janet? I think the pathway has to be based on some metric that drives everybody to optimize across the board. And I don't have that answer yet, but I am deeply looking for it. This has been my mantra for a long time. Metrics have to drive optimization. If I have a metric and you have a metric and we work for the same person, we are not um, driven to work together. We are driven to succeed our own way. So when we have a metric that is about optimizing us working together, then we'll get somewhere. Mm -hmm. And today that doesn't exist. What would it take to do that? And where do you think that should come from to be most effective? Well, I think the chief data officer for the government really needs to work with OMB, Congress, whoever those people are, to figure out what's going to drive that optimization. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, that's the starting person. Um, I think that the agency heads need to also be part of that because if they're not, again, they are driven to optimize their own agency. GSA mm -hmm. is always driven to optimize GSA. Um, you know, OMB, uh, education, NASA. I mean, they all have they all have their missions and they have to succeed. So, in order to get this done, we've got to start with a single point that has accountability and responsibility. So th we're in year 
three, I think, of our 10-year data strategy. Do you like where you see that progression taking the government to get to the end state that you've talked about in this conversation? I think it. I think it's going in the right direction mm-hmm. overall. We do have a lot of people coming together to do data standards. We're looking at the, you know, the QSMOs, the Quality Service Management Offices, are helping with that. You know, they're driving collaboration. They're they're saying, okay, you know, grants, for example. We've got all these grant systems. What data can we get to come together without changing the systems? Right? They're doing it. So we've got segments of it. And, and I think that having that starting point is really good. And then all these other layers that also drive um, to collaboration. Um, what do you think is the, what's the right outcome when we look back five years from now that we're mm-hmm. going for, to your point about we have to have a metric, what's the right metric to determine we're on the right path, do you think? So from a, from a user, government user perspective, so a citizen perspective is the word I'm looking for, mm-hmm. it is that when I go to Social Security Administration or education, I have to put my, my, my data is there. My basic data is there. I don't have to start fresh. And I know that they're working on that. I, I, I can see it in little small pockets. And then... I can get to the stuff that I need. So let me give you an example. For, for the last three years, I've been working with an agency to get a copy of my birth certificate. Three years, and no one has found it because they don't know where the, the written records are. Oh, man. So if that were digitized, yeah. you know, if, you know, for example, um, Iron Mountain is doing a lot of digitization. They're, they're not only scanning it, but they're using OCR to, to make the data real mm-hmm. and searchable, right? If that had been done with the records from Germany, from Department of State, I wouldn't have this problem. I finally got it, though. <laughs> Three years, though. I mean, yeah. that's... Um, but, you know, and that's not on them. I, I mean, two of that was COVID, right? Right. So it's, I'm not, that's not a ding on Department of State. That's just a thing about records have to be digitized. They yep. have to be available. They have to be unified. You can read more about digitization in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Salesforce brings the public sector and customers together in the digital age. To access the new Veteran Mental Health and Resiliency Resources module, go to trailhead.salesforce.com. Acquisition experts say the Internal Revenue Service is implementing some innovative solutions for acquisition. Guy Torres is the Deputy Chief Procurement Officer at the IRS. On the main stage at ELC 2022, he tells me he's applying knowledge he learned in the private sector to make buying better for his agency. What's important is our ability to understand some misnomers. Hey, contractors want to be all in, right? They want to be heard, right? They want to be valued. And you know what? Our words matter, you know? And, and I, I, I laugh at this when I say words matter because when you put out an RFI, an RFP, I can't tell you how many times, Francis, I've spent hours in capture war rooms as the voice of the customer trying to explain what the government intent is, but the word shall or will or, you know, or what if. Those, are, those words matter. So what I've learned being you know, over, over the past few years, being on, um, the, the other side, and now coming back into a senior procurement position is I've taken those lessons learned of understanding that there is true intent to be engaged, there's true intent to help, there's true intent to want to make a difference and to be a partner, right? and to allow our industry folks to, to engage with us, and for us to stop, maybe pet, pull back a little bit and not be as risk averse, mm-hmm. right? 
and, and, and provide that type of collaboration, which I think is really important. What did you learn when you were doing BD about the best ways for industry and government to collaborate, to do that communication up front that serves both well? Maybe nobody's going to get everything they want, but that that relationship will be as healthy as possible. Well, you mentioned relationships. Yeah. Relationships matter across the board, right? Relationships between government and industry, relationships between competitor mates. I mean, as many folks out here were friends, but also the competitors. Mm -hmm. But and sometimes, but you realize we work together for the end goal. The end goal is to support a certain requirement, a certain contract. You will team with that with that company. Why? Because you comp provide complementary skills and complementary advantages that industry government wants, right? So you learn, that's what, that's how I've learned. That's really, really important. As you continue to move forward too, as we look at transformation, not only at the IRS, but the other organizations, we look at IT, IT modernization. There, there are complementary skills that we see across the board with many companies out here that can help, help us, right? Can yeah. help the, the, the previous government employees that were on here who were talking about, you know, how to make things, how to make a difference. They're out here. How have you successfully propagated that throughout IRS with people who didn't have the benefit of going to the private sector, doing BD, and knowing what it's like to walk in those oh, shoes, Guy? It's great. It's a great point. And it's a work in progress, right? I've been in this position just over a year now. We have seen a number of activities happening within the organization, a number of transformation, a lead of change, right? An influx of money that the IRS has never seen for decades, right? Excuse me, for decades, I haven't seen that. So what, what it comes down to is, is your ability to be consistent in the messaging, right? And continuing to press, impress upon senior stakeholders within the CIO supply chain, procurement supply chain, right? And, and those chain of commands to message the, the industries here to help. Contractors are a force multiplier, mm -hmm. right? Force multiplier. How? Because they help understand and provide solutioning at the tactical level, right? Yeah. Let's be honest. That's where they are. I mean, you, most you have, you know, the, the workforce of contractors, the government workforce is almost in many cases 50-50, right? You, they are an integral part of our of, of our success, right? So they want they want us to be successful. So why not engage them? Why not lean on them, right? So it, it's 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 part part of my job as a, a procurement leader is to help educate my customers, hey, it's okay to talk to industry. Mm -hmm. You're not going to jail. Yeah. GA is going to come down, fly down, grab you, okay? You can talk to them, right? If you want me there, great, I'll broker the deal. I'll broker the conversation. Yeah. You know, what do you want to talk about? Yeah. Because they're there to help. They, they want to help. The bottom line, contractors want to help. And I didn't really truly appreciate that until it was on the other side. What's the biggest difference in the procurement landscape between when you left CBP and came back to IRS? Great question. It, it, the challenges are all the same, mm -hmm. right? Um, the, the, the challenges that you continue to see in the chronic are you know, your ability to, to execute quicker and faster. And how do you award contracts within the confines or law of the FAR, but also keep up with the pace of technology, mm -hmm. right? That's a challenge, right? Because we're continuing to evolve technology. Our agencies, whether it was CBP or IRS, are, you know, they rely on, on technology to help push their mission, and in my case, to provide a better customer experience for the taxpayer. Yeah. Well, we just saw some of the folks up here earlier doing really clever, creative, innovative things within the, uh, the bounds of the FAR, and I wonder what that looks like at your agency now to try to 
do some of those, because you're doing some of those things too. I The stuff that Harrison has done over his time at IRS and the Molly Kane, the team that you have over there, they're, they're really doing it. Yeah, so I'm continuing to partner with Harrison. Harrison's a rock star, so the, the, the continuing to use uh, expand the usage of, of pilot IRS is important. Continue to look at uh, ways to streamline our our, our sauce sot right, and, and our and our down select processes that we use successfully at CBP and trying to migrate them uh, to to IRS, right? Those are areas we're going to continue to to expand. Also, it's expanding our within our procurement shop, our our training capabilities, our build, our, our ways, our understanding of how to expand our our objective to become efficient and also at the same time engage with industry to provide those streamlined acquisition strategies that will provide the best interest not only to the customer but also to our to the, to the taxpayer. All right, I got a long list here and a short clock, so okay. let's take some right. questions from the audience. Okay. We have the microphones here. Oh, I brought the wrong glasses. Okay. I'm at that age now where I need a, like multiple pairs of yeah. glasses. Yeah. No, I just need you to look for the people with their hands raised for the microphone, because it's just kind of a big blur now. Okay. I see one right there. All right, yeah, microphone's coming. That looks like Dave Nitschapier. Yeah, this is Dave uh, with FedScoop. Uh, so I just want to play off what you just said. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Pilot RRS and what changes we might see in the coming year with that? Now that you have this influx of money, uh, are we going to see a big expansion, and what's next? Great question. So, so for those who are not familiar with Pilot IRS, it's a streamlined acquisition approach that, that awards contracts up to $7.5 million. And again, it's, it's a pilot, so the intent is to, to, bring in the, to, to create a pilot, be successful, and from there, expand uh, with, that, with that work, hopefully. So our, as we look at IRA, right, like I said, I can't really discuss uh, what the path forward looks like for IRA at this time because it's still working in development, but we will look at expanded acquisition strategies where perhaps we could expand the ceiling price, you know, ceiling on a pilot IRS from seven and a half million to, to potentially a higher value. But those, that's a work in progress and it's still being discussed between myself, uh, Harrison, and a few of the folks uh, within the federal government. Thanks, Dave. I like need binoculars, I think. I think we're good. I think, I think people are still trying to wake up, right? Yeah, it's terrible. We're good. No, we're good. All right. Um, how, how do you build a vehicle like that? You can address that specific one or just in general. How do you build a vehicle like that to be able to be as flexible as you might need it to be when you don't know how flexible you well, need it to be exactly? Well, the, I can't take the credit for the build, the build on that because it was Harrison, but Harrison sure, and I have worked together years ago at, at, at DHS. Yeah. So uh, the, the, the premise of creating a, a, a vehicle like Pilot IRS it, is when you, when you collaborate right, with your friends across the federal space, but also in industry, yeah. right, to, to come up with a vehicle that provides a couple of, a few advantages. How do you get speed to market? How do you define a requirement? how they continue to communicate with industry to make sure that the requirement continues to evolve and gets defined. So it's a combination of, the, of, those, of those engagements right? Right? and the buy-in, right? Mm -hmm. Getting the buy-in from the customer, showing what's the value to you? Because at the end of the day, the vehicle's great, but how does it provide value to that customer, be it a, C, a, C, a CFO, C, a CPO, or CFO, or CIO? What did you learn at CBP or either now at IRS about what makes a good industry partner, how they 
work well with you? Like, what do they bring to the table yep. at either at any point in the process yep. Yep. Um, so, to help you get what you need? Great. I, I believe a, a, a strong industry partner, I equate it to, to an evolving relationship you have with someone of interest, right? It's a very nice way of putting it. Yes. Very diplomatic. So, and here are the tangibles, right? The tangibles are, they're all in, right? I can call any, any time of the day and, and they're available, right? Being present, being heard, right? That's, it's really important, right? And, and, and feeling and having that engagement, which, which is critically important. It's not, all, it's not all about the money, it's about the mission success and being, being that partner. I mean, gov government officials, government employees want their contractors to be all in, right? They want to feel like they're part of the plan. I know many contractors want that, and some government employees, to, to our detriment, are a little, little risk-averse of having yep. that. I'm trying to, at my level, I'm trying to break that down at, at IRS because I see the value of those partnerships. What is the hesitation? How are you trying to address it? And is there anything industry can do to help address that, or is that really something that should stay on the government side of the shop? It, it, I think it goes back to a, state, a comment I made earlier about the... the the concerns, uh, or maybe the misnomers of what type of communication you can have with industry that's not going to get you in trouble mm -hmm. with an IG or a GAO investigation, right? That's, that, part, that part comes from education, right? So I think it's, con it's continuing to educate our stakeholders, our customers, on how to approach con of industry, how to approach your contractors when you want to discuss the art of the possible. Right? Those are areas that we will um, need to continue to expand, but it, it, it's, it's a learning evolution, Francis. You said earlier that words matter. Mm -hmm. Our words matter. Mm -hmm. um, why is that important? And what's, again, what's yep. the role in industry? Because I imagine if your words matter, their words matter too. And I'm, I wonder about what impact that has yeah. on the way you do yeah. business with somebody. So being in a, in a capture war room, when I was out, one of the folks out here, you realize how much money you spend on trying to determine what the hell government's trying to say, you know, stay or define in this requirement. And I've been in those positions at companies I've worked for where I'm supposed to be the voice of the customer and we will go round and round and spend hours trying to understand, is this an option? They're considering is this, or is this a mandatory need or a mandatory task that the government wants? How can we contact them? Well, it's too late because the RFPs are already out. No one's talking. Well, man, we should have, could have, should have done this before the, the RFI was released. But these are, but it's tough, right? And, and that's the area that I think we on the on the government side can provide value if we clearly define what we want. And if we don't know what we want, we use different. We will use different acquisition strategies to provide additional input input, i.e. give me RFI, sauce of sot, right? And really seek the input from industry and use it within your Q&A sessions and really understand the, you know, what they're trying to ask. Because at the end of the day, we get what we pay for. So if we assume that industry want, you know, understood this requirement, but we got something different because we didn't perhaps clearly articulate what that meant. When I was watching the presentation of the awards earlier, my take, one of my takeaways was that each one of these organizations at some point figured out how to incentivize in some way their people to take risks. 
to take a chance on doing this thing a different way than they've done it before. What have you found to be effective ways to do it? Even if it's just cover for somebody to try something new, what have you found to be effective in order to do that? You just, you just picked up on, a, on, you keyed on the right word, cover. You're, you want to empower your team to take risks. You need to provide them the assurance that you're gonna cover, you provide them the top cover. It's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to, to fail fast, right? That, but that only comes through time and, and through growing credibility with your teams, right? And I know within our procurement office, we want to get there. That's, that's our goal, right? To, to be, to take those risks, right? It's important. It's a sea change because when I came into this space 15 so years ago, nobody wanted to fail in anything. Yeah. There was no risk appetite at all. And so I guess it's encouraging, and I imagine you saw the same thing from the government side. And I imagine it's encouraging that there are at least a, a cadre of people who are willing to try that at this point. Yes. No, they, they have to, because they, they understand that we, we can't be, in many cases, you, you can't be successful unless you take some, some level of risk. Because if you're waiting to have, um, for something, for, for an activity to become known, it might be too late. Right? You, you, there, there is always some ambiguity as we move forward, whether it's in technology, whether it's, a, whether, whether it's a some type of mission support need, there's going to be ambiguity. But in order for you to, to confirm that or to, order to find that, get closure on, on the ambiguity, sometimes you need to take that risk. Guy Torres, the Deputy Chief Procurement Officer at the IRS. You can find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow. The director of the Office of Personnel Management, Kieran Ahuja. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.